On October 26th, the World Health Organization released a report that announced its findings about the risk factors of eating red meat. Many media outlets ran headlines equating bacon to cigarettes, claiming that fatty meats might give you cancer. Stories about which foods make you healthy and which ones can make you sick have always been part of health media, and many of these stories can be vague, misleading, and even contradictory. For this week's Please Explain, we're talking with Anahad O'Connor, health reporter at the New York Times, about how the media cover nutrition and what we need to know when we're reading health and nutrition reporting. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. What's your take on the WHO's report and how the media has been covering that story? Well, you know, I thought it was it was fascinating for a number of reasons. I think it sort of reflects uh, some of the problems with nutrition science today and also some of the problems with, uh, you know, uh, covering nutrition science. Well, did the Times cover it any better than other media outlets? You know, I, I think so, but of course I'm biased. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when I wrote that story, I wanted to look at what the actual risks were involved, you know, that, that the WHO reported. So they said that eating, you know, um, you know, uh, having a higher consumption of, of red meat and bacon and processed meats, you know, would raise your risk of colon cancer by 20%. You know, I wanted to put that in perspective because people hear that and they freak out, you know, and think, wow, that's, that's enormous. But in reality, you know, you have to look at the absolute risk. Your absolute lifetime risk of colon cancer, let's say, is about 4%. Raising it 20% means you go up to 5%. Um, but then... With other media outlets, you know, there were headlines saying WHO calls bacon, you know, as carcinogenic as cigarettes, which is not true. Well, is it partly the fault of the WHO? You wrote in the October 31st Sunday Times review section that the WHO does a poor job of explaining its risk ranking system. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the media gets a lot of flack, but you have to really look at what the WHO did. So they put, you know, processed meat like bacon and sausages in its, you know, category one group of carcinogens. Also in that group is, you know, cigarettes, um, you know, heavy alcohol consumption, asbestos. So people see that and think, wow, this means, you know, cigarettes and bacon are as bad, you know, when it comes to cancer. But then when you look further, what they categorize as group one is based on the strength of the evidence, they say. So obviously the risk of, uh, you know, of getting lung cancer from smoking cigarettes is, you know, astounding. It's about a 20,000, you know, uh, level of increase of risk. But with, you know, bacon, as I said, it's a much smaller increase. But they said the evidence is as strong. So that's very confusing to people. Didn't the WHO point to 800 studies that document an association between red meat and cancer? Yes. And the critical word there is an association. So these were studies that are observational in, in, nature, in, na in nature. So they take large groups of people, they say, okay, let's look at the people who are eating large amounts of bacon and cheeseburgers, compare them to people who are eating very small amounts of meat, you know, so you compare your average, you know, person at McDonald's to someone who's a vegan, and guess what, there's going to be a lot of differences between these people, and what some scientists point out is that there's such a thing as the healthy user bias, so are these people who are eating cheeseburgers and having a higher level of, of cancer, is it because of the cheeseburgers and the meat, or are there other things that go along with that? And if you look at other studies, you see that people who eat more meat are also more likely to smoke. Um, they drink more. They exercise less. And, you know, that's for a number of reasons. If you've been alive in the United States for the past 50 years, you've heard the message that bacon is bad for you. So if you're someone that's going to eat bacon anyway, 
what else are you doing? What other health warnings are you ignoring? So then to take, you know, a vegan and compare that person to someone who eats at McDonald's and say, aha, the difference is that one eats meat and the other doesn't, it's, you know, there's a lot of problems there. Although vegans can also die of cancer. Absolutely. And cancer can come in many forms and for so many reasons. How, how do modern studies calculate whether or not uh, a type of food or a drink can make a difference in your likelihood to get cancer? So first of all, if you look at you know a lot of the foods we eat, there are studies associating everything we eat <laughs> with cancer. There are studies I that have I remember mushrooms be a, exactly. were linked to cancer. Do mushrooms, are they a, a major health threat? I, I would say absolutely not. But you can find a study somewhere in the literature that says that mushrooms are linked to cancer, that you know tomatoes and carrots are linked to cancer coffee, risk. Coffee, chocolate. Coffee, chocolate. Red wine was uh, considered wine, bad for a long wine, time. Absolutely. Um, and so that's the problem is that we're looking at observational studies, and you have to take into account a lot of these other confounding variables. People who are drinking a lot of red wine, what else are they doing? So they, if they have higher levels of smoking – then the scientists have to try to adjust for that and do statistical analyses. So it's really not a clear picture. It's a very muddled um, picture. And you see this with a lot of other things in nutrition science as well. So, so lifestyle is a key factor. Lifestyle is definitely a key factor. Genetics uh, is a key factor. So this was a very personal story for me because uh, my grandmother died of colon cancer and my father, you know, thought that her colon cancer was a result of her diet. And so he became a vegetarian and raised me as a vegetarian. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in nutrition and health. Um, and so colon cancer runs in my family. And so I'm always, you know, of course, very interested in what I can do to lower my, my risk. The uh, big story, the cover story in Time magazine that week was the war on delicious a new report linking meat with cancer raises questions about America's and the world's eating habits. Mm -hmm. And that suggests exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, a lot of this, the articles that I have seen uh, will make a, a claim like that. And then deep in the story, we read that there's uh, maybe no stati statistical significance to all of this. Uh, well, first of all, what does statistical significance mean? But second of all, shouldn't that be something that should be put right near the top of the article? Or yeah. would they not have an article anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and shouldn't that be something that's also included in, in the study? And, and you have to wonder, you know, why are certain studies published and hyped by their journals? You know, so there's it raises a lot of questions. But I think, you know, there is a lot of confusion in nutrition science, one, because you have studies that are really all over the map. And then number two, you have, you know, a, just a, a huge number of outlets that are covering all these different studies. And some of these studies have very poor methodologies. Some of them are stronger than others. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion there. There and were I, observational studies and there were randomized controlled studies. And there are animal studies. Um, you know, I think any of them to be more trusted than others? Uh, the ones that you can trust the most are the clinical trials. Those are where they actually take groups of people and say, okay, we're going to put one group on a high-fat diet or high-meat diet, for example, and another group you know, on a plant-based you know, vegan diet, and let's see. But those studies you uh, oftentimes you can't do because, number one, they're, they're very expensive. Uh, number two, is it ethical to take you know, groups of people and follow them for you know, 30 years on a very extreme diet? You know, those things are just very impractical. Giving so we them, have to rely on these weaker, um, you know, 
studies, these observational studies that have a lot of, um, you know, caveats. It's unethical to give. That would be like having a whole bunch of people smoke two packs a day and having other people not smoke at all and saying, well, yeah, it turns out the ones who smoked a lot (laughs) got lung cancer. But see, here's a very important distinction. So we know that you know smoking causes lung cancer but we've never had a clinical trial <laughs> of smoking and the re- you know that's largely based on observational studies but the reason we can say that it's causal is because the increase in risk is so enormous you know the the increased risk is something like 20,000 you know times um, whereas with nutrition science you're talking about much smaller risks 20% increase here or 10% increase there you know can you really say something is is causal based on an association that um, small. My guest is Anahad O'Connor, a health reporter for the New York Times. Uh, we are talking about the way media coverage health and nutrition stories, and we will continue our conversation on today's Please Explain after this. Uh, nutritional studies can be set up in, in many different ways. When When you looked at the majority of recent studies and how they were conducted, were there more observational studies being done than controlled studies? Oh, absolutely. Is I mean, it, and you, you talked about a healthy user bias. Yes. So this goes back to what I was saying before. Uh, when you're doing an observational study, um, by very definition, you're not actually controlling the variables. You're just looking at what people are doing and trying to compare one person to the next. You can't. It's not an actual true experiment. Um, and that's what a lot of uh, nutrition science is, is based on. Do you think that health and nutrition reporters should mention how a study was conducted when they're writing about a health claim? Absolutely. And I think that usually happens. I think uh, more often than not, you know, um, you're you're going to have articles that maybe don't, you know, mention these things. But the vast majority of times uh, these things are mentioned. Uh, myself, for example, I, I tend not to write about observational studies because at best, you know, they can generate hypotheses. So I try to focus on writing about clinical trials and, and strong research. What about industry-funded studies? We've been hearing about a lot of that in connection to links between sugar and obesity. Right. So I actually wrote a a big story a couple months ago um, that sort of exposed how Coca-Cola was funding a lot of uh, uh, studies suggesting or research suggesting that what we need to focus on to reduce obesity is uh, we need to increase levels of physical activity and pay less attention to what we're eating. And you see a lot of that. You see a lot of, you know, um, you know, special interest funding research. You see a lot of, you know, companies um, pushing a certain message and lobbying the government. Um, you know, so that's something we have to be aware of. And that's something I always look for when I actually write about research is who's funding it and uh, what's the methodology. Well, is there a quid pro quo usually? In other words, is there an assumption that if I, uh, a big corporation, give you, the researcher, a fair amount of money to do a, a study that is going to come out making me look okay? What happens when a study doesn't go the way the funders desire? Did they just not get published? That's actually very rare that that happens, um, and for a number of reasons. But, you know, this is something that scientists get very upset about. You know, when you question the source of their funding, oh, just because I've taken funding from a company doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, fudge the results or that I'm going to be influenced. But a lot of times, you know, the influence can be subconscious. And, you know, we know that there is an effect. You know, for example, when I wrote the Coca-Cola story, I pointed out that there was an analysis last year that compared 
you know, studies that looked at what's causing the obesity epidemic. And they looked at studies that were funded by the beverage industry and Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And they looked at studies that were independently financed. And the studies uh, funded by the beverage industry found, I think, 90 percent of the time that um, sugary drinks um, were not that there was not evidence that they were causing, you know, or playing a, a causal role in the obesity epidemic. And then the studies that were independently um, financed actually found the complete reverse of that. It was mirror opposite. They found that sugar-sweetened beverages were playing a huge role in obesity. But then they bring their uh, what their findings to government agencies. Can the government agencies be swayed by special interest groups? Well, absolutely. You see, you see a lot of uh, you know lobbying. For example, I think the food industry lobbies the government to the tune of uh, I think it's a couple hundred million dollars every year. So I mean, there's a lot of influence there. And I think, you know, the bigger picture is that a lot of people are confused about what to eat and about nutrition science. A big part of the problem is that we tend to focus in on very individual, you know, nutrients and say, aha, we have to keep, you know, our levels, our intake of saturated fat to 10% or our intake of sodium to this amount. When I think most people who, you know, are are smart and understand um, how food and, you know, our bodies work, they understand that you should really just eat a, pro- a diet of whole foods, real foods, try to avoid processed foods. You know, I, I like to joke that whenever you see, you know, a, a, a package of food that says low fat, you know, to me, that just signals that <laughs> that it's a chemistry experiment. You know, you want to eat foods, you know, the foods that your ancestors ate. You know, let's just try to keep it simple. You've written about grass-fed beef recently. That's what our ancestors ate. Is that better for you? Absolutely. So there, you know, with the whole meat debate, people say, well, you know, our ancestors ate meat for millennia. You know, it can't be that bad for us. And that's very true. But, you know, is the meat that we're eating today the same as the meat, you know, that our grandparents were eating? You know, of course, today, um, you know, with the way industrialization works, you have meat that's, you know, laced with hormones and animals are fed antibiotics and, you know, the nutritional um, value of the meat we're eating today is not the same as it was decades ago. But with grass-fed um, what beef, about organic you're getting closer is to that. Word. Organic, grass-fed, free-range, uh, free that's getting closer to the meat that you know our grandparents and our great-grandparents consumed. So can, is that what we should be looking for? Uh, well, there's a lot can of... Can we re- trust those... For, uh, those? And that's the levels? other thing is <laughs> uh, not to make it even more complex, but you have to be careful because you know sometimes you'll see meat that's quote-unquote grass-fed, but the animal may have been grass-fed for a certain amount of time, and then they're put on grain and they're put on, you know, other things that you're not, that they claim they're not being given. So what you, about have, the, you can't always trust the label. What about uh, but the, you can, for, with grass-fed, you can look for a certification, you know, a grass-fed and organic certification. Are there differences in farm-raised fish versus wild-caught fish? Absolutely. How uh, big? Uh, they're pretty substantial. So wild fish tends to have higher levels of omega-3s. It tends to have um, lower levels of certain uh, pollutants. Um, farm fish is not, you know, it also varies by the fish. Um, so tilapia, t- farmed tilapia is going to be very different from farmed, you know, salmon. Um, I, for one, always try to eat wild fish. Um, you know, I try to eat food um, as close to nature as possible. And then there are these uh, fish oil supplements that contain omega-3s. Do they? Do the studies indicate that it's the same thing as eating fish? Absolutely not. So this is something that grew out of observational data as well. We looked at 
large populations of people eating fish and found that it seemed to be good for their health. And so, you know, scientists said, well, let's extract the omega-3s and, the, and just give that to people. But now when they do studies of these omega-3 supplements, they don't seem to see the same benefits that people are getting from the fish. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be that, you know, there are other nutrients in the fish that work together symbiotically, you know, to affect our health. Isn't it usually the case that if you have a vitamin that you get naturally from a food, the body, uh, it, it aids the body a lot more than if you get it in a pill? Well, absolutely. For one thing, um, you know, when you buy a vitamin, they're oftentimes mega doses. So you may, you know, buy a, you know, a, a bottle of vitamin C, you know, that's a thousand milligrams and you're getting the amount of vitamin C that you would get from, you know, 20 cantaloupes and, uh, a lot of times we've found that when you take these mega doses of vitamins, even though they're good in small amounts, in the amount that you'd find them in natural foods and fruits and vegetables, when you separate them into pills and take mega doses, um, in clinical trials, they found that that can actually increase your rate of mortality. It can increase your cancer risk. So it comes back to the whole idea of you know getting your nutrients from foods. You know, we, we look at an apple and think, oh, vitamin C, but there are thousands of other compounds in there. Um, that we may not even know of. So it's better to eat food as it's found in nature and just let you know your body sort it all out. And then we have eggs, especially egg yolks. We have butter. We have um, processed foods that have nitrates like bacon and sausage. Right. And we keep on reading conflicting information about them as well. Right. Well, this is another case where the research is going back and forth. And part of the problem is that, you know, our dietary guidelines, for example, for the longest time were based on observational studies um, and in some cases assumptions. And now as the research has evolved, you know, we're seeing um, that maybe some of the recommendations that we made uh, that were made decades ago were not, um, you know, uh, were not <laughs> correct. So, for example, this idea that we should all be eating low-fat foods um, low-fat diets that led to an explosion of low-fat yogurts and low-fat cookies and things where they just stripped out the fat and replaced the fat with sugar. And lo and behold, it turns out that eating excess sugar is actually very bad for your metabolic health. Um, Doesn't yogurt lose some of its effectiveness if it isn't whole milk yogurt? Well, you know, there are – when you look at milk, for example, there are lots of vitamins. Um, so people think of milk. They think of vitamin D. Well, guess what? Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So when you take out the fat from that milk and you're drinking, you know, 0% milk with vitamin D, <laughs> you're not absorbing the vitamin D because it doesn't have the fat to actually help you absorb it. Um, so this, again, goes back to the whole idea of trying to do this, you know, reductionist nutrition and, you know, uh, performing chemistry experiments with our food. Just eat it in the natural state. For most people, that's what's going to work out best. A lot of people are concerned about cholesterol levels, and that's why egg yolks became a, a cause of concern. A lot of people just eat egg white omelets. Right. But are egg yolks bad for us? So for many decades, that that's what we were told. You know, the research you know suggested that when you give animals lots of cholesterol, um, dietary cholesterol, that it increases you know their accumulation of plaque in their arteries. But it turns out that, uh, <laughs> you know, all animals aren't the same. We're not all, you know, um, we didn't all evolve on the same diets. And now we're seeing from the research that it actually varies by individual. So for the vast majority of people, it looks like if you eat, you know, a couple eggs a day, number one, the amount of cholesterol in, in those eggs is much smaller than the amount of cholesterol that your body produces on a daily basis. And it looks like for most people, if you 
you know, increase your intake of dietary cholesterol, then your body just adjusts the it adjusts the amount of uh, cholesterol it's making. Um, and but there is a small um, percentage of the population of people who are so-called hyper responders, um, and those are people who tend to have you know familial uh, hypercholesterolemia and uh, problems you know creating and uh, absorbing cholesterol. But for most of us, um, it probably doesn't make a difference. And so now the dietary guidelines are evolving, and most recently. Um, you know, the recommendation to limit cholesterol intake, you know, that, that recommendation that pushed us all onto egg white omelets, uh, that was recently uh, stripped out of the guidelines. So is the bottom line that almost everything is okay if we eat it in moderation? I would say that the bottom line is to eat, you know, what your ancestors ate. Look at eating whole foods. I could eat a lot of blintzes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if your if your great grandparents they didn't eat any ice cream, I'm, am I going to eliminate ice cream from my diet? I have, <laughs> but no, moderation is is the key. You know, you, you can have certainly uh, some ice cream here and there. You can have you know chocolate is good for you. These things, but you want to mainly eat a whole foods diet. You want to eat fruits and vegetables in their whole natural state. You want to eat you know some meat, some dairy. Um, and uh, you just don't want to be too extreme and just eliminate, you know, entire food groups. In February, you wrote about new recommendations of the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. They call for Americans to lower their sugar intake, but not to worry so much about fat and cholesterol. How did they come to those recommendations? So decades ago, you know, based on these, again, these observational studies where it looked like uh, certain countries that had low intakes of fat had low rates of cardiovascular disease. They came up with this hypothesis that fat and cholesterol was driving, um, you know, deaths from heart disease. And so they, you know, recommended low-fat diets. And what happened was that the food industry responded, and they started stripping fat from yogurt, you know, stripping fat from cookies, from all these foods, and then replacing it with sugar. And, you know, suddenly it was okay to, you know, drink soda and sugary drinks as long as there was no fat in them. Uh, as long as you're not, you know, getting fat in your various foods. And now it looks like we have, you know, as a result of running away from fat, we've run toward sugar and, car and refined carbohydrates, and that has created, it looks like, or certainly contributed to an explosion of metabolic disease. So there so, are good carbs and bad carbs. Uh, that's what it looks like, you know, complex carbs, like the kind that you get from fruits, uh, from vegetables, you know, sweet potatoes, um, you know, some would say whole grains, uh, Again, these natural foods, it looks like those are uh, – these complex carbs work very differently for sure than the refined carbohydrates like the ones that you find in, you know, white bread and white pasta and, you know, white bagels, um, sugar. Sugar is a huge um, nutrient of concern because it's – you know, you walk into the average grocery store and 90 percent of the products have added sugars. They're just adding sugar into everything to replace – you know, what we lost from the, the texture and flavor of the fat. In the past, they used to add a lot of salt, and then people got concerned, so now it's sugar. Uh, what does drive deaths from heart disease? Is well, it food-related? Well, heart disease is definitely a diet and lifestyle-related disease. Um, genetics plays a big role as well. Exercise, I mean, it's a complex disease. I think that we want simple answers to a lot of diseases, and that's often not the case. We know these things all work together. Um, you know, so, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the Harvard School of, of Public Health, for example, says that, you know, an excess intake of sugar-related beverage or sugar-sweetened beverages is, you know, driving a lot of death from mortality every year. Um, trans fats, 
you know, are drive have driven a lot of deaths from heart disease and trans fats are interesting because we're now removing them from uh, the food supply. But trans fats were also a result of you know the low fat craze. We stripped saturated fat out of out of our foods and and fats. And trans fats were seen as a healthy replacement for saturated fats. And then it turns out that they were far worse than saturated fats. And perhaps, you know, we're better off sticking with the devil that we know rather than going with the devil we don't know. We only have 15 seconds left, but a listener was wondering, hearing about what we said about milk. Should we be drinking raw milk? Does pasteurization have negative effects? Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of debate around raw milk because then you expose yourself to other problems. So it's better to, to stick with pasteurized milk. And it's I would say it's better to go with whole milk. A lot of nutrition scientists and experts are saying, let's stick with, you know, drinking whole milk. We don't need to go to low fat milk, but, you know, um, pasteurization is good. Anahad O'Connor is a health reporter at the New York Times. And uh, I thank you so much for being our guest today on Please Explain. Thanks for having me.